Ron DeSantis. If Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war in two, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away, or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Up, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars in debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook, our Thursday show, our sports edition. So much going on out there, Scott. So much to talk about. And what a week it was. We had the Masters. We had the Rocket season wrapping up. We had you know, some Astros, Signs of Life. Then not so much. You know, it's it's been a crazy week here in the world of sports. It definitely has. And, you know, one of the things I was going to mention is like, gee, in the last episode, who did I pick to win the Masters? I think it was John. You put, a lot, you put a lot of names out there, a collection of guys. <laughs> You know, I, I just have to lead into this one because I, I'm pretty certain my picks for the other three majors are probably going to be way off the mark. Uh, so I have to enjoy this while it lasts, you know. Uh, but, you know, one thing, the listeners, you, you've given us tales the last two weeks of this, the league that you're playing in and the uh, and, and the legends of the sandbagger who's you know, beating you out twice. So, you know, have you faced up against him again or, or what can you tell the listeners? Well, Scott, we do have what I would like to call breaking news in that world. Uh, three weeks in, I am currently atop the leaderboard of the the point standings. Your uh, your snap hook co-host is is in first place of the league with 160 points acquired through three appearances. A um, little worried I'm going to lose that spot this week as, as Sawyer's got a Thursday night soccer game, so I am. Uh, Going to have to miss league this week. I'm going to fall back down the board a little bit, but I had a solo second last week. Uh, really got me a lot of points. And, you know, if we're looking at this like the FedEx Cup, you know, just just racking up top fives, top tens, getting as many points as I can every week, Scott. Yeah, that's the way you got to do it. You got to be consistent. I mean, I drove I drove three greens and three put it all of them for par. That, that sounds like something I would do except for the driving green part. Bought my old, uh, bought my old high school three wood again. Uh, brought back the old Cleveland launcher, fifteen degree. Put that in the bag uh, for fun today at the first tee. It, there's just something about snagging a nostalgic golf club and, and hitting it again for the first time in fifteen years. 
it's, it's just it's so much fun. I don't know if you've ever gone back and like try to find some of your old high school clubs, um, but it's just there's just something about picking it up and looking down on it and like. I spent hours looking over this club in high school, practicing on the range. It was my favorite club. And there's just something about putting it back in your hands again for the for the first time in 10, 15 years. It's just something feels right about it. What's really sad is actually, you know, when I mentioned I got one of the, one of the first TaylorMades made, uh, it was the Burner Plus. So we were going back. I mean, you mentioned the bubble shaft. We're not even, uh, uh, graphite wasn't even a thing when I got my, you know, my first driver. And unfortunately my dad and I had our club stolen uh, out of our garage. And so, you know, I lost that thing for good. Uh, and so I remember years later, like somebody, it might've been through the first tee or somebody with the HGA, they were giving away like, you know, stuff that was 20 and 30 years old, which was the stuff I played with. And I remember I, you know, I, I picked up a couple of like, I had a titanium driver. I don't know if you remember those, uh, back in the day. Um, uh, I remember, the, you know, the first guy on our team that had a, a graphite driver, a graphite shaft. We used to call it plastic gold because it was this cheap thing that you could just bend, you know, crazy contortions. Uh, but what's amazing is, is that the heads were so small. You know, back, you know, back when I was hitting them, it's like, hey, you know, this is great. You know, I could hit these, you know, all day long. And then you're looking at it, and you're like man, this, this head is like not even half the size of my current driver. You know, what the hell happened? Yeah, the head sizes are are crazy. Even this one's like, I think the launcher came at like 03, 04, the one that I have, and it looks tiny compared to my current three wood, but still feels great. Still feels just like I remember it when you catch it clean right in the middle of the face. And um, there's just nothing like it. There's nothing like nostalgia in golf. You know, they go they go so well together. And that's why I think the Masters is so great because there's so much nostalgia with it. And and this was a really weird year for the Masters for me. Um when you had all the live guys coming in and there was it just had the it had a different feeling coming in. But I, I have to say, I don't know about you how much you watch, but kind of once the tournament started, I, I feel like that live PGA stuff kind of went away and it was just guys out there trying to win. I mean, yeah, the live guys had all their logos on, but you know, for the most part, if you listen to the interviews, stuff like that, like they weren't really talking a ton of live. Unfortunately, I don't get to watch, you know, rarely get to watch much during the week. Um, just cause you know, you get busy doing different stuff. And so, but we did, we sat down cause I went over to um, you know, my parents' house. And so we sat down we watched pretty much the entire final round um and you could see from the very beginning you know that rob's building momentum but more than that i mean we're just you know we're having one of those you know constricted neck kind of <laughs> kind of rounds you know from our our 54 hole leader um and that's and it's tough to watch you know when you see that you know because he started making bogeys right off the bat and rob i'll have to hand it to him you know he really you know he played, you know, conservative golf when he needed to. He played aggressively when he needed to. Uh, he kind of lucked out there. I know I noticed on eighteen that he managed to, you know, I guess have his ball ricochet back in the fairway, uh, so that you know, he was able to, you know, basically get to where he could just chip over the bunker and get up and down. And 
you know, it's one of those chips when you have to do a flop shot. I, I don't know how many times this happens to you, but, you know, you flop it short in the bunker, or you hit it in the belly, and it goes way over. I mean, he sit there, he had that flop shot. He just hits it nice and perfect. It, it, the thing is, with all that's on the line, it was just remarkable about how you know he seemingly kept his composure the entire way. He's, I mean, he's an unbelievable player. Rom, the thing about Rom is his floor is so high. I mean, like his a bad round in a major for Rom, he's still a top twenty in the field, and so. I saw a stat the other day or a quote the other day, essentially it said, I'd, I'd be more surprised if Rom wins less than four majors than if he wins more than four. And I, and I tend to agree with that. His game is so tight. He's so long off the tee. He's so good with the irons. He's a fantastic wedge player and he's pretty darn good with the putter too. Is, is he the best putter on tour? No, but he is very quick to get hot. You know, he's like, He's like that three-point shooter who just needs to see it go in one or two times, and he's like, okay, I'm good. Let's go. That's Rom. When he sees a couple 10-footers roll in, then he starts to gain a little bit momentum. And when Rom gets on a birdie train, you can't get him off. you know. And it's and Sunday played – the weekend played perfectly for John Rom with when you had the severe weather that you did because he's just a steady guy. He's so steady. His game is so steady. And a day – or a weekend when the weather's terrible and the conditions aren't great and you're not going to make a ton of birdies, you need a guy who's just going to be steady and make pars and avoid bad bogeys. And that's what the difference between Kepka and Rom is. Rom doesn't make bad bogeys. Kepka made a lot of bad bogeys. One of the coolest things, and, and, I, and I know you, if you watch the aftermath, is that you see uh, Jose Maria Othabal, you know, hugging him. Uh, I always joke because, you know, since we're being from Texas, I call him Jose Maria or Lasma Ball. Uh, just so I could, you know, butcher his name. But when I was in high school, uh, uh, the freshman year of our team, we actually advanced all the way to the state tournament in golf. And the main reason is we had two foreign exchange students on a team. Uh, and I remember uh, one of them, Frederick from Sweden, he was kind of a jackass, but, you know, he was a pretty good golfer. And Tomas, Tomas from Spain. And if you watched him swing the club, you would have sworn like Semi Ballesteros was his teacher. Because, like, you know, the mannerisms, like, you know, how Semi Ballesteros used to kind of cock the, the head back a little bit. It was like, you know, I was watching, and he, he was long just like, you know, Semi was. You're a great golfer. And I love, you know, when you trace through, you know, the Spanish history, you know, Ballesteros is the first really major Spanish golfer. And then you go to uh, Jose Maria Othabel. And then, of course, you go to Sergio Garcia. And, and now John Rahm is the next guy in that line. And what's what's really great is just to see, you know, what kind of effect this will have on the game of golf in Spain. Uh, because, you know, kids are going to, you know, they're going to, model their game after him and you know and, and he a terrific player you know terrific composure and i agree with you if he if i would be shocked if he wins fewer than four majors and the big difference too is sergio was not the ambassador for the game that spain needed i think rom is a much better person to help grow the game in spain than, than sergio garcia sergio is a whiny baby 
He is a world-class diva. He's a douche. He's he's not he's not someone that's going to make the game better for those wanting to play it besides Sergio Garcia, and that's why he's in live realistically at the end of the day. But I think you're right about Rom and and his effect on on youth. I I don't think you'll see it just in Spain. You're going to see it here in America. You know, I was at the first tee today working with a kid who, you know, way over swings. We're talking like John Daly club all the way. And this kid has grown. I'm not kidding, Scott. In the six months I've been working with him, he's grown seven inches. And so where he maybe previously needed that to hit the ball, now this kid looks like a middle linebacker for Notre Dame. And he doesn't need that anymore. So when he does that, he's swaying and he's he's throwing himself out of whack with his giant swing. So I said, hey, do you know what John Rom's swing looks like? Yeah, of course. I was, All right, do that. Let's do a drill where you only swing it as far back as Rom goes. And that's what we're going to work on. These kids know that his swing looks a little different. His, they know what he does. And so it's not just going to be in Spain. Obviously, he's going to have an effect there. But he's going to be one of these guys, man, that that I think kids look up to. Uh, I think it's him. It's it's Jordan Spieth. Um, and there's, there's something I want to get into with Spieth. I want to ask you a question about Spieth. But he's going to be one of those guys that really, really – kids look up to he's a he's a quality human being he's got two beautiful children um a guy who english was his second language and he speaks it very very well there's a lot of a lot of really good reasons to look up to john rom but i heard a comparison out there and i wanted to to run this one by you people compared jordan spieth to a modern day phil mickelson the way he's quirky hits a bunch of really weird short game shots Drives it all over the place, but shaves it with the short game. The conversations that he has with himself on the course, the way he talks himself through shots. I thought it was crazy at first, but but the more I kind of wrap my head around it, I I think it might be a pretty spot on um, comparison. Is is um, Spieth is is kind of Mickelsony out there? You know, in an odd way, I could see it. Um, and I think what the two of them have in common is I think, you know, and, and this is, and we're going to get into, you know, a long discussion here in a minute about, you know, statistics and analytics and things like that. But what's so funny is, is that it's the difference between what a guy is and what the perception of him is. And Mickelson is that is one of those guys where everybody's thinking like, how'd this guy not win 10 or 15 majors? And so people are somehow disappointed in his career when Mickelson's had a pretty damn good career. I mean, just this week, I mean, he finishes in a tie for second at 52 years old, uh, which they put a graphic on the board that he has the highest finish since Jimmy Demerit. You know, Jimmy Demerit was 51. And you want to talk about you want to talk about stats and and sabermetrics and and advanced statistics. One of the big ones in golf is shots gained, um, and that kind of tells you how much better you were than the field that week. Phil gained three point oh two shots on the field this week. Tiger in two thousand nineteen, when he won the Masters, gained three point zero one on the field. So essentially, you could argue that Phil played just as well this week as Tiger did when he won in twenty nineteen. 
And I would say Spieth is so far, I mean, we don't know what his full career trajectory is going to be, but we, it was so far he has that similar feel that people thought, you know, this guy's going to win 10, you know, 10, 12 majors and it hasn't happened. And I would say it's not likely to happen, but we have to take a, take a step back. You have to sit there and say, okay, how hard is it to win even just one? much less multiple majors, because we've talked about this before, how many really, truly gifted players there are on tour right now versus what's been in the past. I mean, I would say in any given week, you know, even in, in non-majors, you'd have like, you, you have 20 or 30 golfers out there easily could win any week, you know, if they get hot. You know, you maybe you could bump that up to 40 or 50, depending on who's in the field and and how strong the field is. So, you know, if Spieth only winds up with three or four majors, that's still a pretty damn good career. I mean, you look at, I'm going to look at the, the World Golf Rankings top 20, and I'm starting with number 20. Uh, Kurt Kitayama, Tom Kim, Tyrell Hatton, Sanjay M. And I think here's where it really starts to get in unbelievable talent. 16 in, Matt Fitzpatrick, major winner. Jordan Spieth, major winner. Tony Finau, unbelievably talented. Cameron Young, young, unbelievably talented. Justin Thomas, two-time major winner. Colin Morcala, two-time major winner. Sam Burns, young, unbelievably talented. Just won the match play. Victor Hovland, young, unbelievably talented. Just finished top five of the Masters. Will Zalatoris, uh, young, unbelievably talented. As eight top tens and ten starts in, in majors. Max Homa, young rising star, unbelievably talented. Xander Shoffley, unbelievably talented. Cam Smith. Major champion, Patrick Cantlay. I've got some thoughts on him, but very talented. Rory McIlroy, major champion. Scotty Scheffler, major champion. John Rahm, major champion. That's your top 20. You take the top 20 of 1992, I'm not worried about that. And then just outside the top 20, Hideki Matsuyama at 21, Shane Lowry, 22, both major champions. Billy Horschel at 26, Sahith Tagala, young star rising at at. Uh, 28, Justin Rose at 31 is a major champion. So, yeah, you're absolutely right that there's more talent now um, than there ever has been uh, on the PGA Tour, and it's it's just a deeper tour than it's ever been. And you didn't even mention Kepka, who's their 54-hole leader. You know, so- I try to stay away from the live guys because their their rankings aren't as accurate simply because they don't get points for the live appearances. But you're right, yeah. Kepka's, but Kepka too has been on such a, a slide lately. He's found his game in the last last couple starts. He's played a lot better. Um, but yeah, there's just so much talent out there, Scott. That um, it's so much harder to win a major nowadays. It's absolutely harder to win a major now. And and I think one of the things that's interesting, I think it's so much harder to win a major than three years later to win it again. I think you're so much more likely to win. In a, in, a, in a spurt, because that's how golf is played, right? You get hot and you press it when you're hot. If you look at Spieth, he won two or three right in a spurt right there. Rory won two or three right in a spurt. Mickelson had a spurt. Tigers had multiple spurts where he wins two or three in a row. When you're hot, you ride it. It's so much harder to come in, get hot for one week, win a major, hang around and be good enough to stay on tour for five years, come back, win another major out of nowhere. That's just... Like the Justin Thomas route, that's really hard to do. He's just had two good weeks randomly, and 
within a six-year period and won two PGA championships versus, you know, his his good friend Jordan. He won two majors in back-to-back because he got hot. So to kind of uh, to kind of push us you know forward here, kind of what you know Tim is you know mentioning is you know he's mentioning looking at depth, you know, and things like that. And how do we know depth? And how do how do we measure this thing? These this is where statistics come into play, and, and statistics have gotten uh, a bad name here in recent times. You know, could we call it analytics? And you know, I could you know I could mention you know specific people like Manfred the commissioner of baseball who came out and said, you know, analytics is ruining the sport. And so what, and one of the things I wanted to do this week is I wanted to go into a history of analytics and also look into why do we have analytics and, you know, and what is this really all about? Now, part of this is that I am a published author and I've used a lot of analytics in the books that I've written about baseball, particularly I've got, two different editions of the Hall of Fame Index. But when you study, uh, and we did this, you know, historical deep dive uh, with our political episode this week. And so, you know, might as well do a historical deep dive uh, this week. Baseball is really the first sport of the major sports that's plague, you know, at least in a professional league. And so they're the first ones that are using stats. And so we have a guy named Harry Chadwick. Harry Chadwick is the father of baseball statistics at least the majority of baseball statistics that you're familiar with he's he's the one that gives us batting average home runs runs scored rbis hits walks strikeouts errors but the funny thing about harry chadwick and this is where uh, uh, the thing that kills me is he was a deeply religious man and so he did not think that anybody should get credit unless they actually earned something. So, and, and, and this kind of affects one statistic that I think is probably the single most underrated statistic in baseball is the walk. And when you look at walks historically, it's because in his day, he thought that the walk was a negative thing that happened to the pitcher, but that the hitter was just kind of there. It happened to them. It's not really, you know, not something they did good. They just, they, they, you know, they happened to benefit from the pitcher's, you know, bad performance. And that kind of, you know, pushes us back. But, you know, we see, you know, obviously John McGraw, I think, is one of the first managers. He didn't mention on-base percentage, you know, specifically, but he, uh, he kind of instinctively knew it, especially if you look at his numbers. But... If you think about it, this is what's what's maddening to those of us who, who like statistics is people will complain about the heavy use of statistics when we're looking at athletes. But invariably, in order to prove that their guy is the best guy, what are they going to use? They'll use statistics, which is, it kind of just blows my mind. It's just they use different ones. Um, and we see... Stats kind of build up, and we see basketball and football lagging behind a little bit. Uh, but they're catching up quickly in the use of analytics. And, and so really, analytics has two basic uses of which we could you know, dive deeper into. Number one, we want to rate performance. You know, how do we know? Like if, if Tim and I come out and say Mauricio Dubon sucks, well, how do we know that he sucks? What, what are we using to determine that he sucks? 
Or are we just saying, well, in our gut, I think he sucks. But number two, analytics have been used to change the actual strategy of what we use to win a game. And I think, you know, actually, basketball is probably the greatest example of this because we see with Daryl Morey, uh, when he was with the Houston Rocks, he figured out that, geez, our offenses are a lot more efficient if we're shooting more threes. And we're shooting more threes from these specific spots of the floor. Like the quarter right. They three. officially eliminated entire spots of the floor from their offense. Threes, right. corner threes especially, and layups and dunks. Those right. are the shots. And, 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 people, and, and people who like basketball, love old-time basketball, they have lamented this. I mean, they are, they are besides themselves. Because, gee, what happened to the 18-footer? We used to have guys that could hit that mid-range jumper. Well, he figured out, geez, you know, if I could hit 45% of these 18-footers, but I could hit 40% from the quarter three, my God, look how many more points we're going to score in a game. And, and that's where, you know, those the, these offenses have become more prolific, but people seem to think, you know, this is a less aesthetically pleasing version of the game. And so I think it's the strategy where analytics – is in that you know the crosshairs for a lot of fans. That's what's frustrating with analytics across all sports, except maybe golf, because I don't think the golf crowd overuses it as much. But the aesthetic versus the best way to win it really isn't an art. It's an argument right now. When you look at basketball, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, people complain about the loss of the mid range. What they really complained about was when James Harden was shooting a crap ton of free throws every night. Because analytically speaking, James Harden moving downhill to the basket was the best play because either A, he made a pass to somebody that was open, B, he finished, or C, he was fouled. So what was the Rockets' offense for a long time? James Harden moving downhill. But then what happens? People get tired of the amount of free throws that James Harden has. It's not good basketball. It's not fun to watch. Blah, 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 blah. Now we don't call fouls on James Harden anymore. So what does the offense do? It changes. And they find a different way to to be the most successful they can analytically. and Basketball is the one where I think the aesthetic and the analytics have started to line up. You know, people enjoy high scoring games. I don't know about you, like 85, 88 games, like they're, they're okay. But like 135, 130, that's exciting. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of action, balls moving up and down the court. People are scoring points. Like that's, that's aesthetically pleasing. Where it gets into baseball, what's frustrating is, is stuff like the shift, right? Where you have great analytics. You can see where people hit the ball a majority of the time. And baseball is a game of we play the numbers. We are going to play whatever the best play is a majority of the time. That's what we're going to do. So 60% of the time that this guy hits a ground ball, it's on the ro- it's on the ground to the right side. I'm going to put 60% of my fielders over there. And I'm going to leave just the third baseman on the left side playing more like a shortstop. Because people got so tired of these ground balls that used to sneak through, not sneaking through and too many strikeouts, too many guys trying to hit home runs to beat the shift. Hey, we got to get rid of the shift. We got to end this. We can't, we can't let this saber metrics ruin the game of baseball. And it's, I think part of it is, is to the detriment. I think part of it's, it's, it's Jonah Hill. It's uh, Aaron Sorkin. It's really Aaron Sorkin's the problem. Aaron Sorkin made statistics look dorky the way that he portrayed them in in Moneyball. Like if you look at 
it, it just looks so fluky and stupid when in actuality it's it's the best way to put a winning team together. Yeah, I think if you tra- trace the history of baseball, which, you know, I hate to call myself an expert, but uh, um, if I know anything about uh, something as baseball, there are ebbs and flows of the way the game is played. And that's you know, the anti-shift. Well, the, the, what makes me angry is that there is a natural evolution to the game. If teams are shifting against me, I need to learn to hit the ball the other way. And so if I learn to hit the ball the other way, and I do that just as often as I pull the ball, then shifting doesn't work for me. It doesn't work against me. Uh, they used to shift on Ted Williams all the time. Now, now what Ted Williams would do, he just hit the ball over the fence. I mean, it, you, you can't really apply a shifter. Uh, but the shift isn't anything new. It's just they, they leaned into it a little bit more as they got you know better numbers. And, and one of the fun things is if you're looking at and, and uh, like I'm going to say just one guy's name and it will we could go into this long drawn out discussion. Martin Maldonado. Uh, if we look at Martin Maldonado, if you look at his, you know, number one, his hitting numbers, we know what the hitting numbers are. I mean, he if he hits 200 this year, uh, I'll, you know, I might throw a parade for him. But if you look at the defensive metrics, everybody talks about, oh, what a great defensive catcher he is. Well, if you look at the defensive metrics, he really isn't all that good. So he's, he's you know, right around, you know, if you, you look at defensive run saved, which is a fielding Bible, it's one of the ones I love to use. I mean, he's right around zero. Christian Vasquez was a better defensive catcher than Martin Maldonado. You know, Christian Vasquez just happened to catch one game in the World Series, and it just happened to be the no-hitter. You know, I'm sure that's, you know, maybe it's an accident. It's fluky. But but if you looked at his defensive numbers, he was better. But what happens is, is that people who don't like the numbers, what we're going to do is we're going to shift. Because we know there are tangibles and there are intangibles. Intangibles are things that we cannot measure. Now, what I would say is that we can't measure them yet. Because, you know, we didn't, we used to know about pitch framing, but we couldn't measure it up until about a decade ago. And now all of a sudden, we're having to look at catchers and see who's really good at pitch framing and who isn't. Uh, and it's, so what they'll do is they'll sit there and say, oh, he's great at working at pitchers. He's such a veteran. He knows the pitching staff. He can, And it's like he is not the only damn veteran catcher in baseball. There are other veteran catchers in baseball. He's not the only one. Um, but I think what they want, what people want to do is when we want to push past the analytics, when the analytics don't back up our opinion, we're going to set our opinion on an intangible. Oh, he's such a great leader. You can't, you can't, you can't measure how many runs he's worth defensively because you know of all the things that he does working with pitchers and all this, that, and the other. And it's like, come on, you know, who are we trying to kid here? It is, it's sometimes. I mean, I've had that thought myself too, though, right? Where like I've I've thought a certain way of a player, and then I go to Baseball Reference and I look up some of those numbers, and you're shocked, right? Where we were like, wow, I didn't realize I didn't realize this guy was either A, this good, or B, I thought he was better than that. And so, you know, depending on the person that you are, either A, you eat crow, or B, you start looking for other ways to justify your argument beyond what the statistics have available. 
And it's like you said, the, the, the intangibles, the immeasurables. Now with Maldi, God, I hate to be this guy. I, I do think there's quite a bit of immeasurable that goes with them. I also would have liked to have re-signed Christian Vasquez. I, I do think that there was room for both. But I think Maldi is is, is going to be a guy who is a manager in this league one day. I think he's his immeasurables aren't as a veteran. He's literally you got an extra you got an extra coach in the in there, and and we'll see with him. You know, it, it he's he's run the best pitching staff the last three years in baseball. So I do think there's something to that, and and he does do a great job cutting down base dealers at a at a time when more people are running than ever too. So it is, I think we'll, we'll see maybe if those defensive runs saved this year is a little bit higher as, as people test Maldi a little bit more and he has a chance to throw out some more base runners as well. That'll be an interesting number to look at. Uh, yeah. He is elite in that category. Uh, definitely. And I, I agree. He'll be a manager someday. He's, he's basically the 2020s version of Brad Osmus. You know, Osmus was, you know, horrible offensively. Um, yeah. But, you I know, think he might be a little better than Osmus was too, because Osmus didn't throw as well as Maldonado does. But I think Osmus was better behind the plate blocking balls and stuff than Maldonado. But I yeah. think Maldonado is a much better thrower of the ball. He might be also have been a better pitch framer, and unfortunately, he played before we started looking at those numbers. You know, the the pitch framing numbers. Uh, but here's where statistics come into play, right? Uh, I never coached baseball or football. I coached high school volleyball. What I can tell you as a coach, absolutely, definitively, I had kids I liked. I had kids that I thought gave my team a better chance to win. Um, And if you asked another coach, they wouldn't see it. They would, they were saying like, no, this kid's actually better than that kid that you, that you seem to like. And without statistics, and I didn't really have good managers, uh, student managers who could do statistics. So unfortunately, I couldn't really back anything up. But this is where, and if we look at Dusty Baker, and we look at any other manager, they have the same thing. They have guys they like. He likes Maldonado. I think he likes Dubon. I think, you know, there are guys that, you know, he seems to like that different managers have that they like. And you're looking at it, if you look at the stats, you're like, I don't get it. Like, I think Jake Myers, I think what happened is, is that Jake Myers has some pictures of Dusty Baker in a compromising situation, and that's why he's on the roster, and that's why he gets put in the lineup. You know, like nights like tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm joking here, folks. Don't, you know, don't come sue me for uh, for libel or slander here. I'm, 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 I'm being sarcastic, but... The hey, point I, is, won't, I won't take any Dubon slander right now. He's he's probably our best right-handed hitter at the moment. Well, and that's where stats come into play because stats kind of confirm the opposite, right? So Tim and I could come in here, man, Dubon sucks. And then he's like, wait a minute, he's hitting 350. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, but I think that's where stats are so valuable as I think uh, analytics are valuable on that end where they force you as a coach to sit there and say, okay, what are my biases? And are my biases, are they producing the best result? Because I can sit there and say, I lost far more volleyball games than I won. Uh, I probably, my best year, I think I won six games. My best year. So 
definitely somebody could come up to me and says, you know what, when you played this kid at this position that you weren't, you know, set your lineup in the most optimal way. Now I could sit there and say, you know what, you might be right about that. But unfortunately, I didn't have numbers that I could use. But these guys all have access to these numbers. You have access to, you know, so, you know, we do have access to the fact that Dubon is, uh, you know, is hitting. And, and uh, going into the, the, uh, the intangible part, and the thing is that we used to talk about, man, this guy hits the ball hard, but he doesn't seem to get hits. But we never had a concrete thing to look at up until the last several years where we start to look at exit velocity. That's where we could come in and say, hey, Kyle Tucker hits the ball harder than you know, any Astro or Jordan Alvarez hits the ball harder than any Astro. It's like, yeah, we now have numbers to back that up. And so that's where we could sit there and go, yeah, we, we kind of guessed that Tucker would do, you know, Tucker's off to a good start. And we kind of guessed that would happen, you know, based on, you know, the, the fact that you can't have the shift based on the fact that he does hit the ball really hard. And so it ends up benefiting us because instead of just sitting there saying, gee, he seems to hit the ball hard, but I just don't know. We're like, no, he's hitting the ball 98 miles an hour or 102 miles an hour. I mean, we, we have those numbers right at our fingertips that we could sit there and say, yep, my thoughts are backed up here. Well, then let me ask you this, Scott, because I think one of the trends we're seeing now is there's going to be some GMs and team leaders who back away from the advanced statistics. They don't go all in on it. You know, in fact, even um, before the Astros hired a GM this summer, Jeff Bagwell was was kind of in charge of some of those um, conversations with players. And, and he's quoted, you know, he was saying there's a blend, okay? It's not all about advanced statistics. It's not about saber metrics. You've got to be able to blend those two things together. Why do you think there are so many organizations that are just unwilling to, to steer into it? You know, it seems to me that the Astros best years were when they played the numbers. You know, I, I don't know if you've read Astro ball, but you know, they kind of relate it to, to playing blackjack where this is what the book says to do. So we do it. Why do you think teams are a getting away from it, or b refusing to accept that this is the way to go? I think there's a couple of things behind that. I think number one, you know, you look at the money, movie Moneyball. You mentioned the A's never won; they never won, you know, even a playoff series, much less you know getting into you know winning a pennant or a World Series. And so, if you're sitting there saying, "If I'm going to lean into numbers that much," well. They, they didn't win the whole the ultimate thing. So, geez, our numbers but like, really what if the it. Yankees? But that's to me, it was because the A's didn't spend properly. They couldn't, they couldn't build. So, what if you went to the Yankees and you said, "You've got money, but I want you to spend it correctly. Go get the best people to build the best team." Why don't they do that? Instead, they go get Giancarlo Stanton because they think he can hit a lot of home runs with the short porch. It's, it's, it's to me, it's those big spending teams who refuse to look into this. It's, it seems to be, it's kind of thought of as a way for teams with low payrolls to compete, but they'll never win the big, they'll never win the big series, the big game doing it that way. That's not the way to win at all. I don't understand why some of the bigger spending teams didn't look at what the Astros did and say, Hey, you can do it this way. I think there are ebbs and flows with that in that regard, because if you look at the uh, 1990s Yankees, you know, those Yankees teams that won in the 96, 98, 99, 2000, they, they were primarily built from within. I mean, they, they sprinkled in a few free agents here and there, 
But, you know, that team had a lot of homegrown talent. You had Jorge Posada, you had Derek Jeter, you had Bernie Williams, you had. Uh, but, you know, you even, even the free agents that you had were not break the bank guys. Like Paul O'Neill is not a break the bank guy. I mean, uh, they, they spent Scott, big on pitching. Scott Brocious, you know, was a decent, you know. Clements. Uh, Clemens was a big, yeah, Clemens was a David big. David Wells, David Cohn, those were big they, signings. Yeah, they did. Uh, but their best pitcher throughout that period was Andy Pettit's homegrown. Um, I, don't, I, think, I think Clements, the, before he left, he was their best pitcher. I mean, he went like 20 and 2 one year. Yeah, it's true. I think part of it is like the pivotal seed in Moneyball, and, and this is where, you know, a lot of that movie kind of, you know, it can be dragged on. And you had the personality stuff, but it was that when Jonah Hill is talking to uh, Brad Pitt in that parking garage, that's the best five minutes of film that they're able to come up with. And the whole idea was, is that, you know, teams think they're buying players when they should be buying wins. But what we have to remember ultimately is that this is an entertainment, this is an entertainment business. And so am I, you know, am I going to win more games? Absolutely. Signing a Jason Giambi to a huge contract back then uh, versus signing three or four pretty good players, but, you know, people are not familiar with. I might win more, more games the second way, but I'm going to sell more season tickets the first way. And I think that's where, you know, and – and it was hard is that and it also it's, it's it, science evolves, statistics evolve. And so I think the game is going to keep evolving because we're going to end up seeing like with the bigger bag, we're going to see more steals. We saw more steal attempts on opening day that we'd ever seen, you know, uh, just this year. And if the, if teams are successful enough, like if they're stealing 80, 85, 90% of their attempts, that provides them an advantage. And if you have an advantage doing that, you're going to keep doing it. And the same way, you know, it, it, this is where I think the Astros won, and this is something that's against the analytics at the time. But if you look at the difference between their 2016 club and their 2017 club, it was strikeouts on offense. I mean, they, almost, they practically led the league in strikeouts in 2016. We jettisoned Colby Rasmus. We jettisoned uh, our catchers. We bring in Brian McCann behind the dish. We bring in Josh Reddick. Uh, We have Carlos Beltran. But what they do is they end up having the fewest strikeouts. And that's not an analytic thing, or at least it wasn't at the time, but it might be now. You know, and so if you keep studying, and maybe you, maybe we see a correlation between making contact and winning, maybe that turns things around, and we don't, you know, get these guys who are three outcome guys who are either strikeout, walk, or home run. And I think that's, you know, when I'm looking at the Astros in, in uh, 2017, that's the thing I noticed was that a sharp reduction in strikeouts, you know, from the offensive end. And that's something that they pretty much held to throughout this run. Um, and that's one of the things that's worried me in the early going is that that one game against the Twins where they struck out 17 times. And you're like, gee, I don't know. This, you know, maybe we're not you know, the team that we thought we were. 
And that's what worries me too as well is when a team that had used analytics pretty successfully goes away from that, you know, and, and Bagwell specifically said, you know, there's a mix, right? So maybe when we were looking, we, we lost a lot of guys that analytically fit with that no strikeout, put the ball in play. Well, now they're not here anymore. You know, Correa's not here anymore. Uh, Michael Brantley's hurt. Uh, Springer's not here anymore. Altuve's hurt. Now you're left with Jeremy Pena, who, you know, had a pretty high strikeout rate his rookie year. Alex Bregman, who's a notorious slow starter. Um, you've lost Yuli Gurriel, who was pretty good for all but like one year of his career putting the ball in play. He had one bad year with strikeouts, but then he bounced back, um, you know, the next year. And even last year, he put the ball in play. He just had some, a lot of balls right at people, you know. And so his his expecting batting average on balls in play was much higher than it was in actuality last year. So the way that this team was put together, again, we didn't have a GM. There was no legitimate GM. So you couldn't even have someone who, you know, we don't know if Dana Brown is a big analytics guy yet because we haven't really seen how he wants to put his roster together. But we know for sure Bagwell isn't. Bagwell came out and said, you know, I, I want to get away from this trend. I think you got to find a way to blend old school baseball scouting with, with new school stuff. So it's interesting to see this team wasn't put together the same way some of the other ones were. And we're, we're seeing some of those high strikeouts. Now, when Altuve comes back, when Brantley comes back, obviously I think those numbers will go down a little bit. But you're absolutely right. And, and I think one of the other points you brought up with, with how the Astros self-scouted through analytics. And I think that's the trend that is making its way into other sports. And, and the one I think it's making its way into most is golf, Scott. Because let's look at a guy like Bryson. You know, Bryson basically took a very analytical approach to the game of golf. And he looked at majors, especially percentage of guys who hit the fairway, where they're hitting their balls from out of the rough. Was it worth it to try and play shorter and play in the fairway? Is it worth it to play longer and just play out of the rough? Where is it, you know, where is that shot gained and lost when you have a longer club versus a shorter club in your hand? Bryson took a statistical approach to golf, rebuilt his golf swing to go about attacking golf courses differently. And for a period of time, it was working. Um, I, the human body is not meant to to play golf the way that Bryson played, and that's why he's got some injury issues. But when you look at the way guys can dissect their own game and figure out game plans, especially at like major golf course venues when they're built a certain way, and you know, hey, I'm I'm losing strokes to the field on my putting right now. I am I'm gaining strokes off the tee. I'm gaining strokes from approach. I'm losing strokes with my putting. I need to work on my putting versus, you know, 15 years ago, you just say, man, I had a lot of putts this week. I didn't putt well. Didn't feel like I putted well. Well, now, you know, everybody else putted well and you putted like shit and that's why you lost. And so you can see where you compare to other guys immediately on tour. You can see where you're losing golf strokes. And this isn't even just for the tour guys. There's apps out there that as a amateur golfer, you can see very quickly where you're losing shots, where you're gaining shots. And this is where I think the trend for baseball, I think analytics is going to be what it is, right? But I think there's some of these other amateur played sports, golf, I think tennis, I think you'll start to see some of it in, in amateur tennis a little bit, or even in volleyball too, Scott, as you start to see some of the statistics work their way into the high school game for kills and, and things along that nature. These are going to be tools for young student athletes to get better. And I think that to me is, is 
the biggest thing with these advanced statistics and with analytical statistics is they're tools. And if you use them properly, you can really get a lot of information about yourself. And if you're honest with yourself, you can get a lot better. And you can use that as, as proof of the areas you need to get better. But you've got to be honest with yourself and look at that data um, with an unbiased eye, especially when you're looking at your own data. Absolutely. Uh, that is absolutely right on point. Uh, and I think the biggest debate in terms of baseball, and this is what we saw, you know, if you read Buddy Ball, which is an excellent book, if you watch the movie, the movies, I mean, I like the movie okay, but it's not nearly as good as the book. It's an, uh, it's an Aaron Sorkin movie at the end of the day. It's a, it's a pretty standard Sorkin movie. It's not great. It's okay. The it's que- Sorkin. Yeah. The ultimate question is, um, can I teach you to do this? That's, that's the whole, that, that's the whole thing, right? And so, you know, what the, uh, the buddy, the book Buddy Ball was basically saying is if you want a guy that walks a lot, you sign a guy that walks a lot. Uh, versus the whole idea of we're going to bring a guy into our system and we're going to teach him to walk a lot. And and the question is still to this day, and I think that's where, you know, the people who want to marry scouting is that basically I want to, I want to sign, I want to scout, I want to uh, draft people that have skills I can't teach, you know, speed, athleticism, you know, hand-eye coordination, you know, things of those nature. And then I can teach them the rest of the stuff, you know, and, and if that is, if that's possible. Now, in terms of the game of golf, and this is something that I, I've thought forever. But Real quick too, Scott, before you hop too far in golf, I think the perfect way to describe you, the, the way to use advanced analytics and scouting is you want to be able to reverse engineer, right? Like if you want to be able to look at the top 50 baseball players of all time, Go look at their scouting report. Kind of put together the, the key things that these guys all have in common, whether it be, like you said, great hand-eye coordination, great speed, great whatever. Find those guys. Use the, use the data. Put together the, the reverse engineering of all these great players had these similar traits. So I'm going to be looking for these similar traits, and I can get them into my system that values based on balls, that values taking the extra bag, that values going the other way. And we teach them from day one, this is our system. And I think you're right. If you can combine those two things, it's, you know, you got to reverse engineer, hey, these major league players all had these two things on their scouting reports. Let's make sure that everybody we look at has those two things. So, you know, before I get into my golf point, they told a story about Ted Williams. You know, with Ted Williams, in addition to, you know, Baseball is one of the greatest fighter pilots ever, you know, in, in U.S. history. Uh, and he missed, you know, probably a combined, I would say, about five seasons, you know, serving his country. And they said that when he was up in the air, 10,000 feet, he could look into a little, like a maybe like a five by five foot colored box on a barn. From 10,000 feet up, he could tell you what color it was. From 10,000 feet. And so what he said was he could uh, he could see the stitches on the ball when it when it's in motion, and so when he sees the stitches, he knows exactly what pitch is coming. And so we're talking about a guy who had you know twenty ten vision. I think Bagwell had similar. I don't think he had vision quite that good, but I think his was his was you know, up there. And so you know sometimes it's just flat out 
how good your eyesight. I mean, that, that's, you know, it's remarkable. But in, in golf, the point I was going to make was, and this is, and, and I've probably, like you, I've probably had close to 100 lessons, you know, between now and, and when I was growing up and, and playing golf. You know how many lessons I had from on the course? Zero. Zero. And I think one of the things, and, I can, and my uncles are the perfect examples of this, because my uncles... They all played softball, baseball. They could hit the ball 300 yards. You have no idea where it's going, but they could hit the ball 300 yards. But what kills them every time is like they'll be in the woods, and it's like, and they'll sit there and say, "Hey, I can hit the green." It's like, yeah, but you got to miss eight different trees to hit the green. Just chip it out right here. Play your next shot on the green. You know, maybe you get a bogey, maybe you get a double, but, you know, you're, you know, you're a 30, 35 handicap. You know, you're going to be in good shape, but instead you're going to sit there and try and needle it between eight trees. And I remember my uncle did this once. We were at this course, Texas National. I don't, it's not, it was in Willis, Texas, and I don't think it's open anymore. Hits the ball in the woods. You hear him hit a second shot. Son of a bitch, motherfucker, did shot fight, man. See him hit another one. You see this ball being thrown out into the fairway, and he said, new rule, casual woods. And it's like, yeah, but if you just chip the ball out, you know, you would have been lying two here instead of five. And I think, you know, especially golfers growing up, uh, you know, but I think any amateur golfer, especially the ones that don't play very often, if you can get a pro to go along with them and sit there and say, okay, what are you trying to do here? And what, do you think this is, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen here? What's the best thing that can happen? Like the people who think I'm going to do 220 carry over this lake. It's like, okay, when was the last time you hit a ball 220 yards carry? You know, so Today. what are the, you know, what, well, you, yeah. But I'm talking about with the average, like typical, like, bogey golfer like you shoot 90 like i mean if i'm playing well i'll shoot in the high 80s these days i'm not carrying 220 there's no way to hell so what are you doing so if you had a pro that could sit there and go okay why don't we just lay up to here then you got yourself a wedge and you know that's a much easier shot for you and you see guys like, you know, or, you know, how are we chipping? Like if I'm around the green, what style of chip? Am I doing a, doing a flop shot when I could just punch and run it? You know, be a lot more, you know, take out, you know, the possibility of chipping it way over the green. That's Obviously. the one I see the most with the kids is five feet off the green and out comes the 58 degree. I mean, it happened again today. The best player in my group, this guy is 10 years old, can break 90. Two, two, three yards off the green, out comes the 58, and he leaves it to like 15 feet. And I said, that should be a nine iron. That should have been a nine iron bump and run from there. And you're right. Every every player that takes a golf lesson should have a playing lesson. And I, I was fortunate enough, Scott, I, I'd say about 30% of my lessons growing up were on the actual golf course. And that's probably why I was able to develop some of the shots I developed because I had someone with me in the cart going, that's a really stupid decision. Don't do that. Yeah, and that's where my and, and I do that with my uncles, but they're hard headed. They just you know they they want to do what they want to do. But 
part of it, what I was really good at growing up. And a part of it was just the style of golf that I had to play. Because uh, when I grew up, I had, you know, you had a driver, you had a three wood, had a nine iron, seven iron, five iron putter. And so when I grew up and I was playing golf, and I was playing golf by like nine or 10 years old, I was chipping with a seven iron all the time. And so I got really good. If you stuck me on the fringe, I was getting up and down two-thirds, 75% of the time, which at that age, you know, is pretty remarkable. Uh, but the thing was, I, I didn't get as good, you know, chipping from a wedge because that didn't come until a whole lot longer. Um, but that's exactly right, a playing lesson. And I think that's where, you know, analytics, you know, you, you were mentioning like, you know, the pros, you know, breaking down their game with analytics, but it's basic, it's basic, you know, odds, right? What are the odds that I'm going to pull off this shot? And if I don't pull off this shot, what is the likely outcome? Like, you know, I've got a rescue club. I'll either hit it pure or I'm going to snap hook it. Those are the two options with that club. I know that. I know that going in. So, uh, like, I'm looking at them, I'm 180 out, you know, and my sister's saying, okay, look at all that water and OB left. Do I really want to pull this club out right now? And I might not. I might, you know, pull out a five iron and hit it short of the green, but it saves, you know, the possibility of, you know, triple bogey or quadruple bogey. And I think if more amateurs would do that, they would walk themselves through a round. You know, instead of shooting 105 or 103, maybe they shoot 95. And maybe they, you know, they're not hitting the ball any better with the 95. They're just not doing stupid stuff. I think long story short, essentially what you're getting at is analytics is it's kind of like playing with a caddy. You know, it's it's got someone along the way with you to either tell you, Yes, this is the right Sorry, shot, or no, that. this is not the right shot. Sorry, somehow I set off my Amazon device with that term, but you know, it's 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 that caddy. Whether it's in in baseball when you want to make a change, whether it's in football, you know, to say that hey, we should be throwing the ball more, and here's why. Whether it's in basketball to say the three point shot, the layup, a dunk, those are the way that we want to play. Analytics is that caddy that person that coach that tells you yes or no and and that's the way that it should be looked at whether you're an amateur trying to improve your game whether you're a professional who wants to be the best version of themselves that they can be or whether you're uh, a general manager trying to put together a team there's a right and the wrong way to use statistics and analytics and it's up to each of us individually in the roles that we're in to, to use them the right way and to use them to our benefit my favorite story is I went to one of our Sabre, our Sabre organization. Once a year, we meet with the Astros. And so we'll meet with usually the general manager. And so I've heard from Tim Papura. I've heard from Ed Wade. I've heard from Jeff Luno. Uh, I haven't gone in recent years, so I, I didn't hear you know from uh, James Click or, or uh, obviously our, our new uh, general manager. But the story that got uh, forwarded, this was from, I think it was from Tim Papura from his era. They used can, to. Fall. Can you really trust a Tim Papura story? Well, in this case, I think I can. <laughs> this guy, I think I can. Uh, they used to farm out their stats uh, for the upcoming series. You know, the, uh, the advanced scouting, 
and they would produce and, and I'm, I'm, uh, we're a radio media, but I'm holding up that the, the notebook was like three or four inches thick for just that T because you're looking at, okay, it's a, oh, a zero, zero count. What's he do on this pitch? What you do on this? What you do? Brad Osmus, he said, would read that before every series and memorize it. I mean, it, it, and that's how, I mean, he, you know, Dartmouth educated, right? He's, you know, he's a bright guy. And so, you know, information is power. If I know, if, if I have information, I can use that information however I want. I could, you know, like uh, what used to, would kill me, uh, and, and I know you're sad to hear that Jake Odorizzi is out for the season for the Rangers. I know that breaks your heart, uh, as it breaks my heart. But one of the funniest things is that when he was pitching for the Astros, and you look at his entire career numbers, the first two times through the order, his ERA for his career was like three. After that, his ERA was like six. And Baker would do that. He keep he would he would cruise through five innings, and, and, and all, all of us on our you know our fan site everywhere pull him now. I mean, he could pitch five no hit innings, but if he had made it two ways through the order, I'd be yanking him. And and we did too. And and he threw a hissy to. fit. He threw a hissy fit when we pulled it. I'm here to pitch. Yada yada yada. You pitch for what you're good for. You know, I, I I'm only pissed he's not, he's out just so the Astros can't tee off on that guy. Yeah. I, I what I wish they would have done is if I, if I were the manager, I would show him the numbers for his career and say, listen. They says if you develop a new pitch with a wrinkle, I'll give you April. I'll give you April to show me that you can make it the third time through an order. If you can't do it in April, never do it at you know May through the end of the year. But that's but that's information is power. And the, the impression I got is that Dusty Baker just simply didn't care. Because you know, pitchers are supposed to go, you know, six or seven innings. I want to get my six or seven innings out of them, but it's like, which I'm sorry, if I knew that a Jake Odorizzi could give me five innings with a three ERA? Sign me up. I mean, I'll pay that guy $10 million. Yeah. Because, you know, he was fairly consistent. You know, finally, when, you know, he finally got, you know, up past his first month of the season, his first year, he was fairly consistent doing that. He was consistent giving you those four or five innings. And if you had pulled him right there, but that's a perfect example. And it's, it's also an example of what you can do for pitchers. You can do, you know, and I think Verlander and, and the other Hall of Fame pitchers know this instinctually, but they know I can't pitch this guy the same way I pitched to him the first two times in the order. I can't do that. He's going to catch up with that fastball, or he's going to tee off on that curveball. i got to go a new sequence. I've got to do a new pitch. And, and that's why the guys, like you know, you mentioned Clemens before, um, and what always – was remarkable about Clemens, and I think the same thing about Verlander was their last inning was they're usually their best inning because they knew this is my last inning. This is the seventh inning. I'm going to be pulled after this. I'm saving everything I got for this inning. Or hey, I haven't shown this guy my slider yet. Let's see if he can hit that. And and that's they're smart that way. And, and 
Jake Odorizzi is basically a fastball pitcher. It's like, well, guess what? If you throw a 92 to 83 mile hour fastball down the middle of the zone, eventually guys are going to hit it. And usually the third time through the order, that's when it's going to happen. Well, Scott, some would say, and Houston especially, that Dusty not pulling Jake Odorizzi would would be a, a scumbag move. I, I'm not one of those people, but there are some out there who, who don't like that move. But we do have some thoughts on our sports scumbags this week. It's not going to be Dusty Baker, but um, God, if he can't get the lineups figured out, he might make his way out of this list here pretty soon. Ah, I can't hate on Dusty. He got us the ring. Either way, sports scumbags this week, Scott. I know you've got a good one. Why don't you uh, take it away? Actually, I'm going to let you lead off here. I'm trying to okay, find okay. Uh, find where I sit that, uh, so I want to make sure I do the right one. So for me this week, we're going to kick it back to Augusta. And you you said you watched the whole final round. I, I don't know if you noticed how often John Rahm and Brooks Kepka were waiting and waiting and waiting. And to the point where Kepka was quoted as John Rahm went to the bathroom seven times and we were still waiting all day. And the reason they were waiting is because Patrick Cantlay decided to take a leisurely Sunday stroll through Augusta, Georgia, playing as a twosome in just under five hours at four hours and 55 minutes. A hole and a half behind pace, a hole and a half behind the group ahead of him. I don't know about you, Scott, but slow play is is one of my biggest pet peeves on the golf course. I don't care if you shoot 120. I don't care if you shoot 120 sitting next to me in the cart. Keep an eye on where your ball is. Keep up pace to play. I got no problems other than that. For a PGA pro to go out there and do that in the biggest tournament of the year, some would say, with the Masters, or at least the first major of the year, it's embarrassing. It's a bad look for the sport. It's a bad look for those of us who watch the sport because you know what? Now there's going to be idiots doing what Patrick Cantlay did out on the golf course. I mean, there were times where where Victor Hovland was 60 yards ahead of that guy hitting a chip shot while Cantlay still making his way down the fairway because Hovland's tired of it. And Hovland wasn't even a fast player. It was was absolutely outrageous. The the idea that a twosome plays around in four hours and 55 minutes, it's, it's ridiculous. And I understand there's money on the line, you know, different stakes than I've ever played for in my entire life. But I still... Can't imagine playing 18 holes in a twosome in four hours and 55 minutes. I I can't imagine it, Scott. I literally can't wrap my mind around playing golf that long. And it's unfair to the people behind them. It's unfair to Kepka. It's unfair to Rom. Golf's a hard enough game as it is to stay focused for four hours. To add an extra 55 minutes into that, to have to sit there and wait multiple times, five, ten minutes on the tee, When it happens to me on the Muni, my round gets shot to shit. I can't imagine sleeping with a lead, coming in, and then having to just wait and wait and wait. And it's just, I understand you're having a bad day. I understand you thought you had a chance to win. I understand the weather was tough, but nobody else played that slow. Nobody else did that. And it's, it's a really, really bad look for Patrick Cantlay. I could not agree with you more. Um, when I was growing up, it was not uncommon for my dad and I, especially if the golf course was empty, we, we could play under three hours. Before Easily. COVID, I could play as a single and under under two and a half if yeah, I had a cart. 
And I probably, and, and, and this was even back in the days when we were walking, you know, and we were playing under three hours. I mean, I probably don't spend enough time. You know, I, there's times where I will just hit a ball, not have a practice swing or something like that. You know, you probably a pro would come to me and say, hey, buddy, you need to slow it down and, and figure this out. But, yeah, see ball, hit ball. That's, you know, that, that's, you know, the way that I, I play. And it, it, it kills me whenever I have to wait on somebody, you know, to clear green. And the ones that kill me, and I mentioned this in a past episode, but it's the people that are sitting there. We're playing a par five and you're on the tee and you're watching a group sitting there going like, well, 250 outs, but let me late, wait for the green to clear. And it's like, are you kidding me? You, you couldn't hit the ball 250 yards out of a cannon. You know, hit, go ahead. Hit the ball. And, and those people, yeah, they, they drive me nuts. And and, I, and, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, I don't know that Kepka's going to blame his performance on that. You know, he, Well, he, probably, he already did. Um, and I don't know that he should. You know, he probably should just own it that he, you know, that he messed up and, and these things happen, but I can't imagine it helping. Um, it's just, yeah, that's, that's incredibly. And, and, and they used to, you know, they used to you know, levy, you know, penalty strokes and things like that after a certain point. So you had to wonder if he had an official warning or, you know, anything like that, but yeah, I okay. don't know. I've been put um, on the clock before. And it was I got put on the clock for another player's slow play, like the whole group got put on the clock, and that had to be the most frustrating experience. I I got into a like a knockdown drag out argument with this kid on the golf course because we're playing Galveston Country Club. He hits one OB. I watch it go OB. I'm like, hey man, that's out of bounds. Why don't you hit a provisional? He goes, nah, I'll find it. He walks over there. It's out of bounds. He now had to walk all the way back to the tee and re tee. And now we got an HGA official going to put our whole group on the clock. And I'm and this this guy's taking six practice strokes for everything. A two foot tap in, a ten foot putt, doesn't matter. Six times he's practicing before he goes. His name was Clay. He played at Clearbrook High School, and I hated him. <laughs> I've had I don't think I was ever put on the clock. because uh, I don't think they had a clock. You know, the, the I played back in the sundial days, you know, we didn't do they Clocks hadn't been invented. Uh, no, but seriously, yeah, they, they didn't do that back in the days. But yeah, there were people you played with. You're like, come on, you know. Now I did remember my scumbag. It took me, uh, and I and I have to give a huge assist here to Sean Bajani, who was our guest a couple of weeks ago. Um, because if you recall, Sean Bajani covers the three major teams in Houston uh, for the Six Sports Radio Six Ten dot. Um, and so he's actually in the locker room and he's actually covering practices and he's actually covering this. So my scumbag for the re- week is Rafael Stone. And why is he the scumbag for the week? Okay, so they fire they fire Steven Stiles, which we predicted would happen, which, you know, quite frankly should have happened. You don't get to win 60 games in the span of three years and keep your job. Sorry, that, that just doesn't happen. However, Rafael Stone comes in the press conference and he starts blowing this just absolute bullshit about how, oh, Stephen Silas is such a great guy and he was such a great guy to work with. And my goal is for people to think that I'm as such a, as good a guy as Stephen Silas as, you know, as people seem to think he is. And yeah, 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 you know, 
He's just going on and on and on. Well, if you look behind the scenes, Raphael Stone was not only telling him, you know, who to play. He was telling him how to conduct his practices. He was also telling him how to play. He did not let Steven Silas install his own offense, which was the reason why he was hired in the first place, because he had the best, he was the basically the offensive coordinator for the Dallas Mavericks when they had the most prolific offense in the NBA. That's why you hired him. Now, granted, they hired him, you know, hopefully that you know he would get along well, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, and that you know, obviously didn't happen. But don't blow smoke on my butt about how great a guy this is. You know, you're firing him. You're firing him for a reason. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. You sit there and say, hey, you know, we want to thank him for his efforts, but, you know, 60 wins in three years is just not the standard we want to go by. We're going to look for a better coach for these guys, and we're going to move forward. You don't have to sit there and talk about how great a guy is. You know, the reason why you think he's a great guy is because he lets you run him over. That's why you think he's a great guy. And, I, you know, I don't know that Raphael Stone should be fired. I don't know if I'm quite there yet. Because I do think that, by and large, especially when you look at the rest of the league, he's drafted fairly well. Um, obviously there's some individual picks that we could quibble with, but I think he's done, you know, he's done a decent job of assembling talented basketball players. I think, you know, getting, uh, getting, uh, the trade, you know, that brings in, you know, our current point guard from Cleveland, that was a great trade. You didn't, tr- you didn't give up hardly anything for that guy. So, you know, on a transactional basis, he's doing okay. But if he's doing this much meddling behind the scenes, then you know maybe he needs to be on the hot seat, and maybe we need you know Tillman Fertitta to bring in a new general manager to talk about what a great guy Rafael Stone is. But hey, we need to move in a different direction. Yeah, I'm the, I'm with you on Stone. A lot of people were very happy with him early on, you know, for the way he he got assets out of the Harden trade and. Um, I think he's done a great job with asset collection. I think the Rockets are in a fantastic place. Um, I, I I don't like the GM mingling. I you know I had the same issue with the Texans when um, Easterby or or Casario's in in the ear of of Cully, and you know that was not okay. It, you, you hire people to do a job, right? And you know we saw some of the the comments that John Wall made when he was when he was interviewed about you know basically being told by Raphael Stone you're not going to play, and and he was a guy who probably could have been helpful to some of the young Rockets players that they had and could have helped them learn how to be pros in the NBA even if he just got ten minutes a night. But at the end of the day, Stone wasn't okay with that, and so I'm with you. I, I do think you know because just growing up. The Rockets were good my whole life until recently, for the most part. You know, maybe not my whole life, but most of my time remembering being a Rockets fan from the time we drafted Yao Ming all the way through the time that James Harden left. The Rockets did not have a losing season. When when Daryl Morey is here with Les Alexander as the owner, our low point was 500 basketball when you had Kyle Lowry and you had Goran Dragic 
uh, and you had Luis Scola. You know that the low point of the Rockets bottoming out there was a 500 team. They were you know, 41 and 41 at that point. You know, playing with Kevin Martin as your as your star player. But then all of a sudden, you're able to make a move for James Harden, and, and things change to a whole new level. Uh, and and to be frankly, that we're we've been spoiled. We've been spoiled for a long time of Houston basketball, for a very long time with great play. We just couldn't couldn't get over the hump. There was always that one team that was just really really good. When you look at Golden State, uh, took care of us a couple different times um, in in the conference finals. Um, just always seemed to run up against that eventual champion. But, um, you know, the Rockets played some exciting basketball. They played very, very good basketball between the time I was in, like, seventh grade until 2020. And so that's a 15-year run, Scott, of of darn good basketball. So it's it's very frustrating to see how Stone has kind of set that goodwill on fire here in the last couple of seasons. Well, I'll go you uh, further back. I mean, you go back to my childhood. Um, the Rockets drafted Ralph Sampson, I think in, let's say 83. Is it? I no, think Akeem was 83, wasn't he? And, and Ralph Sampson was before Akeem. Ralph right, Sampson so I think was, Sampson was like 81 or 82, and then Hakeem was, was in that 83 draft. 83 was the season where they lost to NC State. So it would have been that draft. Which would after, have still been 83 because the, yeah. the draft would have been in June. Right. So it was uh, so 82 and 83. Since then, they've been, you know, they were 500 or better all the way until you mentioned. Uh, well, I mean, they had a couple. Yeah. They had a couple seasons where they were a little rough with like Stevie franchise and stuff like that. But yeah, that's true. But, but they, from the moment Yao got here, and then they traded for T Mac. When T Mac and Yao paired up with Adelman, and with before that with Van Gundy, that was the start of it for me. Like they they were uh, all they were always competitive, always competitive, even, even when always they had, exciting, always when they had even when they had Francis and Coutinho Mobley, they were competitive. Now, they, they weren't. Out. They weren't winning games as much, though. I think no. really it was it was it was Stevie's first year with Yao was the first time they'd been to the playoffs in, in quite a bit of time uh, since like '97, I want to say. And then after that, they traded T Mac. Uh, they traded Stevie to to the Orlando Magic for T Mac, and then from that point forward, uh, did not have a losing season until 2021. You could look at uh, you could look at uh, Daryl Morey's predecessor, Carol Dawson. And Carol Dawson was constantly, even with that, you know, the Francis and Mobley group, he was constantly making moves, trying to get better. Like he brought in, my, my favorite is he brought in Maurice Taylor, which actually is funny because Maurice Taylor's daughter is a student at my sister's school. She teaches at St. Agnes. Uh, and she actually coaches the golf team. She's, you know, I don't think she's played around a golf in her life, but she's, you know, she's coaching the golf team. Um, and, you know, his daughter is a tremendous athlete from what I understand. But Maurice Taylor always blew, you know, blew my mind, 6'9", 6'10", 260, and he could only pull down five rebounds a game. It's like, what the hell? You know? <laughs> I, I remember him. You could, I remember you could, him very well. You could, I mean, you would think you could get seven or eight just on accident, you know? But um, but he tried, you know, and what I liked about Carol Dawson was, is that, and this is what I think is true of any great general manager, 
uh, of any sport. Analytics or no, he knew when he made a mistake and he was willing to fix it. And so like when he made a mistake, like I remember when Kelvin Cato had like 10 blocks in a preseason game and we're going to go out and we're going to give him like a seven-year contract or something like that. Or we're going to sign Matt Maloney. They were going to sign Matt Maloney to a seven-year contract after like one good season. But the thing was, Carl Dawson was able to sit there and go like, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. And I'm going to do what I can to jettison this contract and, and you know, move on. Instead of being like, you know, oh, no, no, he's good. He's good. Well, you know, yeah, he's averaging eight points now, but he'll be good. I mean, he, he didn't do that. He, um, you know, he admitted it and he moved on, which I think is kind of the difference between what I'm hoping that we're going to see with the Texans is that I, I think early going is that we're seeing with Casario. Casario's made some very definite mistakes. But I think he's moving on quicker from those mistakes than you saw from like Bill O'Brien and, you know, the, and Rick Smith and, you know, people before that. But yeah, the Rockets, and, and the thing what kills me is that you look at this year, we won, I think, what, the last four, like three or four games in a row? You're looking at it, and you're like, Jalen Green played pretty good basketball for the last, like, say, 10, 12 games. Look, you know, it's, Kevin, it seemed to me like the it, moment we guaranteed that bottom three record, we changed our style of play and started uh, trying to win basketball games. Well, like Kevin Porter Jr., he going looked, off. He would look, he looked great the last 10, 12 games. Jabari Smith, you know, looking pretty damn good. Kenyon Martin Jr., looking pretty good. Um, Sangoon, looking, you know, defensively, obviously, not looking good. But, you know, otherwise, you know, offensively. But, see, Jalen Green did the same thing last year in his rookie year. His last 10 or 12 but games. I, but I think that's coming from the coaching. I think there's – they they want to lose games. They, they let it play loose. And then, okay, once we've secured the top whatever pick, okay, now let's really try to win some games and show some growth at the end of the year going into next year. That, but that goes back to Stone, too. That goes back to the directive is we need lottery picks. We are trying to build a team this way, and that's how we're going to do it. If we get the number one pick and it all works out in our favor and, and Harden comes home and we, and we got a full cover to play with, fantastic. We all we, He looks like a genius, right? But what happens if, if Harden doesn't want to come here and now you're in the same position you were and you've got a young roster and you've got no veteran leadership and you're trying to convince, uh, you know, you're going to need a high-quality coach to come in here. I'm, I'm hearing a lot about Nick Nurse. I think that'd be fantastic. But you've got to convince somebody to come in here and do something. And if Harden said, if after all this smoke, Harden does not come home, um, what is this roster? His roster is another bottom three finisher again. And that's where you want. And, and they're really and, – and, and the Texans are kind of fighting in their self in the same boat, really. Because I'm hearing, you know, in, in the rumors, draft is all, you know, we'll, we'll talk, probably talk draft when we get closer to it. But some people are saying, hey, they may pick a defensive player. It's like, so basically you pick a defensive player, you're basically just saying, we're going to suck for another year. And at some point, you got to start trying to win games. Because the thing is, is that, you know, now Jalen Green's two years in, Sangoon's two years in, uh, Kevin Porter Jr.'s, you know, three or four years in, if you count his Cleveland time. Uh, and, it, you know, Jabari Smith, his rookie season is basically a wash. So, you know, to me, yeah, you want to acquire, you know, yeah, lottery picks are nice. You want to acquire good young talent. But the talent you have has to develop and get better. 
You don't develop and get better trying to lose. That doesn't happen. Now, if you try to win, and, you, and, and this is like the same thing we talked about with, you know, with Francis and Mobley. When I was watching them, I knew. It's like, that's not going to be good enough. We're going to need something more. But you know what? They went out there and they played hard. They, they tried to win. And there were some games that, you know, Mobley and, and Francis would you know, both score 20-plus points. And you're like, wow, you know, this looks pretty damn good. Then there are nights where they're turning the ball over and you know, shooting a bunch of bricks. And you're like, oh, this doesn't look good at all. But the thing is, is that they tried to win every time out. They may have won 30, 35 ball games. That's not enough to get you in the playoffs. That's not enough to get you anything. But you, you play better. You develop more. You develop your game if you're trying the very best you can. If you're walking out of the golf course and you're like, I don't give a shit. I'm just going to hit this, you know, I'm going to hit this driver and I'll just kind of play, try and play a circus shot, all this, that, and the other. You're not going to get good at the game of golf. If you get out there and you grind, you sit there and go, okay, I'm going to concentrate on this shot. I'm going to try to hit this very best shot I can here. And you do that for 18 holes, you're going to get good at golf just because your concentration level is that much better. Nobody gets good just by, you know, kind of screwing around and doing nothing. And that's, you know, and Rafael Stone, it sounds like that's what he wanted. And, that's you know, it's kind of become the culture there, right? Losing was okay. Losing was accepted. Losing was expected. And um, that's not going to win games. You, you can't. And what's hard, too, is it's, it's, it's hard to flip that culture around, Scott. You know, these guys are now two, three years into their NBA career. And every step of the way, losing's been okay. Well, now all of a sudden we expect you to win. How do you don't know how to win? You don't know what winning NBA habits are. So realistically, I mean, the best hope for this Rockets team is is a, a winning coach and a winning NBA veteran who comes in and whips these guys into shape. I mean, it's if you look you know, the analogy of the Astros, you had a real young ball club in 2015 that didn't know how to put a series away. You had a real young ball club in 2016 who didn't know how to dig themselves out of a hole after a slow start. What did you? What did Loonhow do? He went and got key veterans that were able to make impacts and teach guys how to win. Teach people what it takes to beat the best closer in baseball. Teach guys how to hit velo. Teach guys what that mentality is when you walk into the building and know that you are the best team in the league every single night. And right now, the Rockets don't have that. They don't have a guy on that roster who can give that to these players. And the, you know, you got to hope. You got to hope that realistically Philly doesn't win a title this year and Harden doesn't want to be there anymore because I think that's the most realistic option. I don't see any other major superstar coming to Houston this offseason unless James Harden's coming too. I don't see it. Right. So next week, we're going to well, hang on. Sp- I've got a pretty dumb tweet here, Scott. Um, I've got a sports dumb tweet. I was going to say, well, next week, we're going to have a guest that's going to talk a little bit more Rockets. So I think we'll kind of table the Rockets talk here until next week. Uh, looking yeah. forward to talking with him. So I've, I've called this Twitter user out before on here. Uh, goes by the name of Live Golf Nation. We've talked about him before. This is the tweet. John Rahm is a Mickelson family friend. He's not really a PGA Tour player. He's more of an independent entity. Regardless, congrats to Rombo for his first green jacket. Are you freaking kidding me? 
The guy has been more pro PJ Tour than anybody else, but just because Phil Mickelson's brother, Tim Mickelson, was his college coach, you're going to try and somehow, some way, claim this as a freaking live victory? Come on. Like, I, I don't understand how people are so diehard live. I don't get it. I could get liking both. If you like golf, I get it. I don't get the freaking diehard live losers that are out there. Yeah, and I think you sent another uh, tweet that you along the same lines talking about how you know Mickelson didn't have any top tens and live, but yeah, somehow is able to come. It's in probably second the same guy. Master. He tweets a lot of stupid shit, Scott. Uh, how he's able to come in second? It's like, yeah, you know, every once in a while, you know, uh, golfers come up with a great week, you know, and every once in a while, certain golf courses that you've played fifty times fit players' games. Phil's played at Augusta every year minus one since, like, 1994. How many rounds is that times four every single time? Plus practice rounds, plus whatever. Plus you've won there two times, and you know it fits your eye. That's how golf is. Golfers love certain courses. Yeah, there's courses that I, I remember scoring on a whole, you know, a ton. And then there's courses that, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, I think the one that killed me the most, uh, did you ever play Wedgwood? No, I did not. That that course, you want to talk about bad golf course architecture? That course was a deeply wooded and links-style golf course at the same time. How's that possible? Well, lots of hills and lots <laughs> of trees. Because <laughs> I, I remember... I, I, I remember I, I, Teen off a high school tournament there. I'm a freshman. I've made my first varsity tournament. I mean, it was like, I, I remember we had to play a nine-hole playoff to get into this tournament. I shot a 38 nine holes because I had three birdies in a row on that nine holes. And so here I am. It's an overnight tournament. I'm like, I get to miss school. We're going out to Wedgwood. I shoot a freaking 106. Because I, I was standing on the first tee, and I'm looking at it, it's tight, so I, I, I pull a, a three-wood out of my back. And the, the guy is, you know, the marshal is running, you know, the, the first tee, so I'd put that club up if I was you. That's like, well, it's a three-wood, I, I could keep this thing in play. Nope. That course, you know, just absolutely ate everybody. I mean, I think as a team, we shot something, we almost shot 400 as a team, which, remember, you're taking your top four scores and i mean we had probably the best golfer his name was steve crossland who was a senior when i was a freshman he had worn out the sweet spot on his irons because he hit them so often in the sweet spot he couldn't break 80 out there i mean it was just crazy um but yeah there are courses and then there are other courses where you sit there and you go like damn i could play out here forever uh, yeah, for me, I'll I'll never be comfortable at South Shore Harbor. I don't know what it is. Even now, I I haven't played it in ten years, and I'm a much better golfer now than I ever was. But you give me a choice between South Shore and Mag Creek, I'm taking Mag every time, and I will always feel comfortable at Magnolia Creek. There is never a, I I could be playing the worst golf of my life, but you send me out to Mag Creek, and I will find it because I've played that golf course so many times. I got dropped off for three straight years at ten o'clock in the morning, and got picked up at five o'clock in the afternoon every single summer. That's how we spend our summer. I like Mad Creek. I've played out there a lot of times because um, we Great used course. to we used to be members, and you could and you could play at South Shore and Mad Creek both. And I preferred Mad Creek uh, definitely. 
And of course, that I always played well, and I mentioned this a few, uh, a couple of episodes ago, but Southwick, of course, that I've always played well at. I've only played there once uh, or twice. Um, that's a good one, though. That's a good little golf course. You know which one I wish I could play again? I would, I would kill to play Clear Lake Golf Course in good condition. Man, that layout was so great. Clear Lake Golf Course had a fantastic layout. It was a fun, fun 18 holes of golf. And they, they killed it for no reason. I, yeah. That's where I learned how to play the game. And, Scott, I would I would give almost anything to play one round again at Kool-Aid Golf Course back in good condition. I love that. And they had, like, the 19th hole that was open you know, back when we were in high school. They never had get, the 19th hole open I could for get, me. I could get a Coke, free refills, and a huge thing of fries for two bucks. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean – of course they had back. such a good range too you remember they and had it, that range yeah bush and yeah oh, that, man that's where and, and so um just thinking southwick you know the the course actually oddly enough the course that i probably had the most fun playing and probably played the best at was waterwood national in huntsville uh which is now i think closed as well but that's where sam houston you know used to play because i remember playing from the tips and that, that that thing from the tips let me tell you um but I remember shooting like 76 or 77 from the tips. Did you play Baywood yeah. at all when you were going up? We played district one year at Baywood. Baywood. Um, we remember at Baywood for a couple of years. That was a great, uh, I would love to play Baywood again. That's another one that got torn down for apartment complexes. Well, my favorite story, one of my favorite stories is one of our guys in, uh, during district had a squirrel steal his ball. I mean, and I don't even know what the rules of golf tell you to do there. I don't know. I mean. Um, you get I, to put it back. Yeah, you probably get a free drop. But, you know, could you imagine this? I'm sorry, it was a true short penalty. Your ball, you know, it, maybe if your ball didn't dress so provocatively, the squirrel wouldn't have taken the ball. I mean, what are you going to, I mean, what are you going to do there? One last good Baywood story. When, when we were kids, I don't know if you remember, but um, the way the range was set up, it was on the far left corner of the property. Yeah. And it bordered Genoa Red Bluff right there. And one day, my little brother decided he's going to work on his punch shot. Except the target was going to be the cars coming down Genoa Red Bluff. So he's just blasting bladed four irons at this road. And luckily, Cameron was not that good and did not hit a single car. But in the process of doing so, the, the golf coach for Pasadena Memorial sees him, flip shit, rightfully so. Basically, like, brings him into the clubhouse, and my brother gets, like, a one-month ban from the country club. My mom comes up there, and basically, the way it was set up, we had, like, eight families that joined Baywood, all under a corporate membership for Carabas, which was my dad's restaurant. No one worked there, but it was just such a good – it was 250 bucks a month for your whole family as a corporate member. So everybody joined. And she goes in there, and she's like, you're going to lose all eight of these members if you suspend my son for a month. Lo and behold, that suspension goes away. Cameron's back out there the next day. And that coach had to uh, walk up with his tail between his legs and apologize for going after a kid who wasn't even on his own team. So classic stories of Baywood Country Club life, but um, another good one that gone too soon. Another course I'd love to play again. That had a great little – you want to talk about a tight golf course? Baywood was tight, and every green was turtle back too. Yeah, I remember – Yeah. That was a good, you know, a good district tournament. I have some stories I'll tell about that one particular one in a future episode when we have a little bit more time. 
Well, that's going to do it for us here this week. It's been another fun, exciting edition. We hope that our uh, discussion on on advanced statistics and sabermetrics and just some of the different ways they've leaked into our world has has been as interesting to you guys as it was to us. But um, Scott, want you let the people know where you are and how to find you. You can find me on the Twitter machine at sbarzilla, um, and you can also read my Texans commentary at Battle Red Blog. And I am writing political commentaries at Juanita Jean's Beauty Salon. So many places. And as always, I'm Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. And be sure to like and subscribe uh, to the show so it shows up in your podcast app automatically each week. And if you haven't liked the Facebook page, page please do so. Again, don't forget to tune back in next week on, two, on Wednesday. Uh, for the continuation of part two on our episode about guns. And then don't forget next week as well on Thursday, we're going to have a special guest talking a little bit of Rockets basketball, a lot of moves to be made in the off season. So we'll, uh, we'll run through as many as we can cram in to the show, but we appreciate everybody who's joined us. It's been another fantastic uh, week of being able to talk to you and, and being able to share our opinions with you. And we're just so thankful that, uh, everyone has, has taken the time to download and, and listen to the show, and, and we look forward to continue to do this with you every week. But that's all we've got for you here on the Snapbook this week. I've been Tim. He's somewhat been Scott, and we'll be back at you next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Snapbook and making Scott and I a part of your week wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook. Snap.